have your Bibles this morning, turn to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, grab the one in the pew back in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at home in English that you can read and understand, we invite you to take that one as our gift to you and would ask that you would commit to read it. Um, if you're using that Bible, our passage this morning is on page 884. It's our first week back after Easter Sunday, uh, but for the Christian, every week is Easter because we celebrate our risen Christ each and every week. But if you're a visitor again this morning who has accepted our challenge to you to give us three weeks, we're grateful for your time and we pray that the Lord would bless you and speak to you from his word. We're picking back up in our series through the book of Romans this morning uh, in Romans chapter three, verses one through eight. I'm going to pray once more before we jump into it. Father, we ask again that you would be so kind as to speak to us this morning from your word. And as Russell prayed, we pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts. Father, I will speak words this morning, but you are the one who applies it to our hearts. You are the one who is truly speaking from your word. So, be with me so that I do not cloud your word, so that I do not misconstrue it, so that I do not hinder your work in any way. Edit my words as necessary so that we may understand this particular text and we may see you more clearly and be drawn in worship to you. We pray these things for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Now, for the past few months, my wife and I have been housing a philosopher at our home. Well, let me rephrase that. We've had a three-year-old obsessed with the question, why? Okay. Hey, Graham, it's time to eat. Why? Well, it's lunchtime. Why? Well, we need to eat. Why? Well, that's how God made us. Why? Well, because we're finite creatures and God is the only self-existent and self-sufficient being who needs no external aid to live and thrive. Therefore, he does not eat. He just is. And we eat because we're dependent on him. Why? <laughs> well, in our passage today, we're going to be presented with a list of questions and objections to Paul's argument so far in the book of Romans. Questions that prod at the nature and the ways of God. Questions posed to find the conclusions of Paul's existing argument. So let's read these questions this morning, starting in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So our main idea this morning, and what I believe to be the main main idea of our text is this, that God's glory is demonstrated and magnified by the just judgment of the unfaithful. That God's glory is demonstrated and magnified by the just judgment of the unfaithful. So we're going to look at this in two ways. Verses 3 and 4, we're going to look at lies and truth. Lies and truth. And then in verses 5 through 8, we're going to look at justice and glory. Justice and glory. Well, so in our passage, Paul is responding to questions about his argument thus far. Now, we don't know if someone is a flesh and blood opponent of Paul posing these questions or if Paul foresees these objections, and so he poses them himself. So in the first two chapters, Paul has painted a very bleak picture, and until we get to chapter 3, verse 21, the picture doesn't get any brighter. In fact, it only gets darker. Paul has shown that the Gentiles are judged before God because they see God in everything that he's created. His character is revealed in what he's created, yet they've ignored it and they've rejected it. But when we look to God's chosen people, the Israelites, the Jews, their state isn't much better. They themselves have received revelation from God, yet they have rejected him and his ways all the same. And so therefore, All of humanity has this universal problem, judgment because of their sin. And so Paul takes these ideas and begins to present the objections that may come up. And the first objection that Paul seeks to confront concerns the advantages and usefulness of being ethnically Jewish or practicing the law that Moses had given. So... Paul has shown in the previous chapter that true Jewishness or identification with God's people is not found by external means, but it's given by the spirit in the heart. So the natural question is, what was the point? What was the point of the Jewish ways? What was the point of the law? If everyone is just as doomed before God as the next, then does my Jewish upbringing provide any advantage for me? But after these two chapters, Paul gives an answer to this question that we might not expect. In fact, we might expect what he tells us in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So that seems logical, given chapters 1 and 2. But that's not where he starts in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. So what is this advantage? What is the value of circumcision? Well, first, he starts off with, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. See, remember chapter 1, all men everywhere have awareness of God. But not all people have the same awareness of God. All people are privy to creation and the ways that God reveals his character through it. But not all people have special revelation from God. This was given specifically to the Jews first. 
To Israel were the oracles of God given. To Israel were the, was the word of God given. To Israel were the promises of God given. So what is the advantage of being a Jew? You have special revelation from God. You have access to God's word. You grow up in a culture where God's word is not only heard, but it's seen in the way that it's practiced. The pattern of the people of Israel was for the word of God to be on their mouths, to be written on the walls of their home, to be seen in the practices of the sacrifices, to be seen in the practice of circumcision. This is the advantage of being a Jew. This is the value of circumcision, that the words of God and specifically the promises of God would be so ingrained in every aspect of life that you couldn't help but know who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is and you would have evidence to his faithfulness. Now, when we think of our lives today as Christians, and especially those of us who have the privilege of growing up in families where this word is proclaimed, not merely claiming the name of Christianity, but practicing the words of Jesus, we must be careful not to drift into arrogance. See, Paul is making the case that the Jews have the advantage because of the history. So too we who grow up under the instruction and admonition of the Lord have an advantage. But again, we reference verse 9. Are the Jews, those given the oracles of God, are they ultimately better off? No, because both fall under sin. See, we must keep these two ideas in mind, that to grow in the knowledge of the Lord is for our good, but to have that knowledge and reject it is to our detriment. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, Jesus gives this illustration that gets to this point. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Every one to whom much was given, of, much, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So I want to speak to the students and children in particular who are being raised under the instruction of the Lord in your homes. Know that this is to your advantage. So heed the word of your parents. Heed the word that you hear when you're instructed here at Southside. But know that this at the same time means greater accountability for you. That to the one whom much is given, much will be required. And this also concerns our understanding and practices of the ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper, but we'll speak to that a little more later. Yet even with this access, even with the advantage, the state of the Jewish people, as we've already referenced, is not great. Up in chapter 2, verse 23, you who boast in the law, you who have access to the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Paul asked the question, if this is the state of Israel, does this nullify or make void the faithfulness of God? Look in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? 
See, God has so closely tied himself with his people that when his people are unfaithful, it can raise the question that God is possibly unable to complete his tasks or he has chosen poorly the means by which he will accomplish his will or maybe even worse, he's uncaring enough to fulfill his word. And if any of these descriptions are true, if this is the God whom we're speaking about, we should be paralyzed by fear. To have a God that would promise salvation and then pull out the rug from under us should make us tremble. That's what makes verse four such good news. Verse four, by no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. By no means. God forbid it, Paul says. In fact, the faithfulness of God is completely independent of man. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. Praise God that that is true. Paul is pointing us to the fact that God is not merely one who speaks truth, but that he himself is truth. That's why he's drawing this comparison between God's faithfulness and God being true. And this is also why he quotes David here from Psalm 51, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. It's a direct quotation. If you know this psalm, which many of us do, it's a psalm worth knowing, says verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David has been confronted by Nathan concerning his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And what does Nathan say? He gives him this this story of injustice and David is enraged and then Nathan says, you are the man, which by the way, next time someone says you are the man, don't immediately take it as a compliment. But David is convicted of his sin, and he, in response, pens Psalm 51. And he recognizes his sin is against God, and therefore God is right and just to judge him for his actions. But notice the reason that Paul says here, as it is written. So Psalm 51 is an example of God being true even when his people are liars. David, the king and the very representative of God's people, is showing that God is true not just in his saving promises, but in his promises of judgment. God demonstrates his truthfulness in his saving work as well as in his justice. So therefore, God is the one justified. God is the one who prevails when he pronounces judgment. The ESV doesn't do us any favors here and it makes it a little difficult to understand as though God is the one being judged. The NIV, I think, gets it a little closer here so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you are judged, when you judge. Now, something that we must fundamentally understand is that God is not true because he keeps his word. It doesn't work in that order. God keeps his word precisely because he is true. God, by his very nature, is the standard of truth. 
God defines truth in creation because he is truth himself. And as I said earlier, God so closely identifies with his people that when his people are marked with lies and unfaithfulness, that calls into question God's truthfulness. That is why we as God's new covenant people, the church, must take great care that our lives are marked by truth, both in our conduct as well as in our speech. Or we will, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, be found to be misrepresenting God. Colossians 3 gets at this. Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what is the nature of this new self? Well, it's the image of its creator. And what is it marked by, this new creation life? Well, it's marked by a rejection and disassociation with lies and a commitment to truth. Our new self is being renewed in knowledge, built up in truth. And the idea that God is true, even when his people are liars, should be abundantly comforting news. If our God's faithfulness and truthfulness was dependent on the integrity of man, dependent on even Christians, we should despair. We know ourselves too well. As Christians, our pursuit is is that of truth. But this is not our current reality, to be utterly truthful, although we pursue it. For we are sinners, just like the rest of the world, granting that we are repenting sinners, but sinners all the same. So maybe you've been hurt by lies, and maybe lies by a Christian, maybe lies by the church. Be comforted in the fact that our God God stands true independently. And we live in a day and age where truth, or rather our perception of truth, constantly ebbs and flows. Our culture claims to be committed to truth, yet each person is allowed to define their own. Our children are told to be true to themselves in whatever way that may be. Our culture esteems spouses who abandon their families because you have to be true to yourself. Our media outlets have agendas and are constantly being accused of delivering fake news. Social media claims to encourage authenticity, but social media can only ever be a filtered expression of self. We claim to want truth, but all that the world provides is lies. This is why we must go to God and his word for truth, because everything else will come up short. Now our second section, justice and glory. Verse five, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. See, God is proven true through the judgment of liars, through the judgment of faithless people, through the judgment of sinners. But in the course of proving himself true, God reveals his truthfulness, his nature, his character, and his glory. 
And we would affirm this, that God's chief concern is his own glory, the magnification of his own name. So Paul asks these questions. If God is served by unrighteousness, if good is coming from lies, then why not increase in unrighteousness and lies so as to create more contrast for God's glory? And notice how he answers this question in the same way. By no means. Now again, scholars disagree on whether Paul is interacting with a flesh and blood person or if he's posing these questions himself. But if it is a real person, you can sense Paul's patience waning and his exasperation growing. Almost as if he's saying, stop asking ridiculous questions. So much so, he answers the first question and almost completely ignores the second one. The first question, if our unrighteousness ultimately serves God, then is God unrighteous to condemn us? And Paul, almost embarrassed to have to engage this question, says this is such a human way of thinking. Your perspective is flawed from the get-go, and so to pose this question shows your futility in thinking. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? The question is rooted in the idea that God is judging his people and specifically his people who are utterly incapable of fulfilling the law that God had given them on their own. But this, but does this make God unfair? Now remember that Paul is speaking in the context of his promises and his covenant people. And the question being posed doesn't seem to be specifically including Gentiles as though the question is being posed like this. I know what you're going to do with them out there, but what about us? I know what the world deserves, but what about your people? But Paul turns our attention back to God's justice in the world universally. He might lead like this. You would agree that the world of a whole is deserving as God's judgment. I mean, that might even produce an amen with that statement. Well, in the same way, so are we his people who have failed to keep the law that we were given. In the same way that God judges the world, he will also judge his people. And isn't it so easy to see ourselves as the exception to the rule? To look at the world around us and view them as the ones with, with whom God has a problem. God, I know you're going to judge that political party, but what about me? God, I know you're going to judge those who practice that lifestyle, but what about me? I mean, I know in my own life, I'm quick to emphasize the guilt of others and downplay my own. So Paul, in the place of his opponent, poses this question a little more personally. Verse 7, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do good or do evil that good may come? See, Paul is pointing us to the ridiculousness of the claims that people are making that this is where his line of thinking leads. So Paul in, is writing from the premise that all men, both Jews and Greeks, are completely incapable of pleasing God on their own. And that God receives glory from the judgment of those incapable sinners. So why not go all out? Wouldn't it serve God and his glory if I just increase in my rebellion? And Paul, notice he doesn't really even answer the question. 
point being made is so preposterous that Paul sees no need to refute this idea. All he says is that people who are charging him are claiming that this is the way that his line of thinking leads, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Then he ends with this question. Their condemnation is just. So who is he referring to here in this last sentence? Is this the person who's promoting unrighteousness for the sake of God's glory? Or is this the Jew who's being judged to show God's righteousness? Well, I think the answer is both. Those that God is judging are justly condemned, both the unfaithful Jew and the one who would encourage others to pursue righteousness that good may come. And I think Paul's quotation of Psalm 51 is key for our understanding of this particular passage. Because notice that God's justification, that God's prevailing occurs when he speaks, when he judges. This is important to grasp that our evil does not glorify God. That's not what Paul is saying. God's judgment of our sin is how he receives glory. God's glory is not displayed, is not served in our unrighteousness. His glory is magnified in his righteousness apart from sin, demonstrated in judgment. So therefore, Paul can say their condemnation is just. And so we come to the end of this passage and hopelessness mounts. And we continue to read in the next few verses and Paul will only tighten the screws as we'll look at next week. Paul has made the claim that God judges the unrighteous and that he will receive glory through his judgment. And that's good news in one sense because it confirms that God is good. But that is terrible news in another sense because that's precisely what we are not. For those of us who would praise God because he will judge those that practice unrighteousness, our praise is short-lived because we practice that unrighteousness. Paul will say in verses 9 and 10 that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. But without condemnation and without justice, there is no gospel. I'll give you a preview of the next couple weeks. Read in verse 21 with me. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is precisely why we come to the table. To proclaim that God does indeed receive glory and judgment for sin, but that in his mercy, he has provided a way to judge sin and justify, declare right sinners. 
So while as our passage shows that God's glory is demonstrated by the judgment of the unfaithful, God's glory is even more demonstrated and magnified by the judgment poured out on the faithful one in the stead of the unfaithful. And this is the profound truth that we proclaim at the table, that our bodies and blood deserve to be broken and shed because of our sin, but that the Holy Son of God, was, his body was broken, his blood was shed in our place. Now first, this practice or this ordinance of the Lord's Supper is given as a visible sign of God's grace. The practice of Christ's church within corporate worship and something we esteem to do here at Southside is to read the word, preach the word, pray the word, sing the word, and lastly, see the word. And so we practice baptism in the Lord's Supper. But this meal comes with a warning. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is is not for the better, but for the worse. Skip down to verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, the Lord's Supper is intended to be one of the ways in which we discern our faith. We judge ourselves before we take the meal so that we're not deceived into thinking that we belong to God when we don't. So in light of our text today, may we not take what God has given to us for our advantage and twist it in dangerous ways to our detriment. See, Paul says that because of their way of practicing the supper in the Corinthian church, It actually wasn't for their good. In fact, it was for their worse. Let that not be true of us this morning. I'm going to ask the musicians and deacons to come forward and begin passing the elements. The second thing that I must say is that this meal is to be taken by baptized believers in good standing with their local church. So if you're a visitor with us this morning, we welcome you. And if you believe this same gospel, that Jesus dies in the place of sinners and resurrects to new life to bring us new life, and if you have been baptized in a church that preaches this same gospel, we invite you to take this meal with us. Because this is not the table of Southside Baptist Church. This is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ to be enjoyed by his people. If that's not you, I would ask that you let the plates pass and not partake. Trust me, you aren't going to get sideways eyes for not taking the food or the drink. But we invite you not to take this meal, but to take Christ. Our hope is not in the food or drink before us, but in the risen Christ. So place your trust in him today and throw yourself on his mercy. As we sang earlier, our sins, they are many but his mercy is more.